Good morning. Hey, turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. As you're turning there, uh, early on in my marriage to Casey, she made a rule. And uh, it was based on a traumatic experience uh, that she had after coming outside to see how I had done on the gardening. And uh, she came outside and I had told her previously uh, at our uh, previous home in Lake Forest, I had said to her, honey, I'm going to go out and I'm going to trim the trees. And she said, okay, okay, sounds good. You know, Neil doesn't do that very often, so it sounds good. Uh, so I go out and I've got my, uh, my trimmer in hand and I start to trim. And I keep trimming and I keep trimming and I'm going from tree to tree to tree and I'm trimming these trees and I'm looking at them looking pretty good. Oh, it's a little, I got to go a little more here. Oh, a little more there. What? No, a little more. Well, that might have been too much, but a little bit more. And by the time I was done with all the trees, my wife walks out, she looks at our yard and is like, what did you do? The trees were almost no longer in existence. That's how bad my trim job was. I am not a good gardener. I'll admit that. I am a terrible landscaper. I couldn't trim a tree to save my life. And right then and there, my wife looked at me and made a rule. She said, you are no longer allowed to trim trees. I had basically trimmed them to the stump. Anyway, in our Bible story today, in Daniel chapter 4, we come across a vision of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And he has a vision of a mighty tree. A tree that will eventually get cut down almost to the stump. It's as if Neil trimmed it. And what does the tree symbolize? What is the the meaning of this tree that is cut down? What lesson is there to learn from the vision of King Nebuchadnezzar? That is the subject of today's message. The first of two parts entitled Nebuchadnezzar, Cut down to size. The title of this message, a series of two-part messages, is Nebuchadnezzar, Cut Down to Size. We're going to begin with part one this morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I ask that You would guide our study of Your Word this morning. Lord, we want to soak up what You have for us. We want to learn, Lord. That's why we're here. We want to grow in our faith. We want to become stronger and become encouraged. Lord, I pray that Your Spirit would use this story of a tree stump to encourage our hearts, to lift us up, to give us direction for the future. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Daniel chapter 4 is an interesting chapter. Um, It contains a decree by King Nebuchadnezzar to all those living in mighty Babylon. It is unclear whether the entirety of the chapter was penned by the king himself, but given the frequent use of the personal pronouns that refer to the king, we can be sure that the king actually had a hand in writing or dictating much of this chapter. In other words, literally, Daniel, who was the king's servant took either a decree written by the king, Nebuchadnezzar, or took notes as the king dictated this decree to him, 
and included that decree in chapter 4. It's fascinating. Now, some Christians find this very problematic. They wonder aloud, and the question in their mind is, well, how in the world could a pagan king have had a hand in writing a portion of God's Word? How could, how could God allow a king like Nebuchadnezzar, a wicked king, to have a part in writing a portion of God's Word? But you know, such a, such a question has a few faulty assumptions. The first faulty assumption is this, on your outline. Given the king's confession at the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's spiritual condition at the time of the decree is not altogether clear. Now let me say this very clearly. There are actually many Bible scholars who would argue that by the end of chapter 4, this confession that he's making is indicative of the fact that Nebuchadnezzar may have come to believe in the Lord God of Israel. Now, we don't know for sure we, 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 we can't know for sure. But it's not altogether uh, convincing that Nebuchadnezzar was still a pagan by the time of this decree. But even if it could be demonstrated that Nebuchadnezzar was still a non-believer, consider this, number two. Scripture frequently makes use of the testimony of non-believers and even pagan philosophy. Scripture frequently makes use of the testimony of non-believers and pagan philosophy. Turn to the book of Jude, chapter, uh, verse 14 and 15. What will you find there? You will find Jude citing, quoting from the book of First Enoch. An apocryphal book. You won't find it in your Bible. But Jude cites it approvingly and, ex- and uses it to explain something in his book. Don't turn there now. You can go home and look. Uh, consider, consider Caiaphas the Jewish high priest, who in the Gospels makes a prediction. He wasn't a believer in Jesus as Messiah. And yet in the Gospels, he makes a prediction that Jesus Christ is going to die on behalf of the whole nation of Israel. A prophecy on the lips of an unbeliever. Scripture makes use of that. Consider the Apostle Paul, who when he was at the Areopagus in Athens, when he was in a a place where all the philosophers would gather to discuss the philosophy of the day, Paul made mention of well-known pagan uh, inscriptions, one of which was to the unknown God. And he cited it approvingly. He said, I see that you're looking for the unknown God. Well, let me tell you who He is. The Bible frequently makes use of the testimony of non-believers and of even pagan philosophy. That's not to say they're endorsing it, but at times they are. We even look at the, 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 the prophet Balaam back in the Old Testament who may or may not have been regenerate, but God used him to prophesy truth. God does use the testimony of non-believers and even pagan philosophy for His purposes. Someone once said that even a broken clock is right two times a day. So also, even a pagan can at times speak the truth of God and perform works that the Lord would approve of. And so let me say clearly, Scripture is not concerned with proving the total depravity of man. That's not Scripture's concern. But rather, Scripture's concerned with proving the total guilt of man. That Scripture, scripture does not set out to prove that non-believers are incapable of good, but rather that all the good that they can produce is still not enough to warrant entrance 
into heaven. It is still not enough. The Bible is not interested in proving total depravity like the Calvinist says. The Bible is interested in proving total guilt that man, no matter what he does, is guilty. Amen? Man must turn in faith to the One who removes all guilt in life and fear in death. The Messiah, Jesus Christ. So now, let us read the words in Daniel 4. Let us read the words of King Nebuchadnezzar and whether he dictated these words as a believer or as a pagan, we don't know. Nevertheless, we are reading the inspired words of God that are useful for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, and training in righteousness. Let's look at verse 1 to 3. Daniel citing the king. He says this, Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it was good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are His signs and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. Now consider for a moment how incredible this is. The king of mighty Babylon, a nation filled with paganism and idolatry, the king writes a letter to all of his subjects about the mighty signs and wonders of the Most High God of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar takes time in an official kingly address to declare to all the world that Israel's God reigns over an eternal kingdom. That Israel's God has a power that is unmatched. In one fell swoop, thousands upon thousands upon thousands across the Mediterranean world are going to hear from their king. They're going to hear about his admiration and his respect for the Lord God of Israel. Could you imagine a, a, a world ruler doing this today? Could you, th- could you even think of that? Imagine the public's response if a world ruler were to make a proclamation like this for all the world to hear. Back in the late uh, 6th century B.C., there was no separation of church and state talk. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have to worry about a lawsuit from the BCLU, the Babylonian Civil Liberties Union. I thought some of you would get that. He didn't have to worry about that. No, Nebuchadnezzar was king. He was the monarch over all of Mesopotamia and beyond. He was the one with absolute power. And on this particular day, he decided to put his name behind a decree that gave glory to the Lord God of Israel. Now, when did this decree happen? Well, scholars are divided on when this might have happened, but most suspect it was around the year 575 B.C., about ten years or so before Nebuchadnezzar's reign ended. So about 575 B.C., is approximately the date that we're looking at for this decree. Why 575? Well, we're soon going to learn that the events spoken of in Daniel 4 lasted seven years. During these seven years, Nebuchadnezzar, though king, was actually not able to actively lead his empire. There would be a seven-year lapse toward the latter part of his reign, a time in which Nebuchadnezzar would be stricken with a kind of mental insanity. So, how does this 
seven-year gap lead us to the date of 575? Notice what Gleason Archer writes in his commentary. He says, We have no Babylonian record of any governmental activity at all on Nebuchadnezzar's part between 582 and 575 B.C. So it may well be that this was the approximate period of his madness. In other words, in all, for historians who have looked at this matter, the Babylonians kept meticulous records. You can read them actually online if you type in the, the Babylonian records of the Babylonian annals. And you can go over the history of Babylon. And there's an interesting gap in the history of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And it happens to be seven years, the exact time frame that the Scripture gives for Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. Seven years in which nothing is said of what Nebuchadnezzar had accomplished. Seven years in which it appears that Babylon was just kind of on pause. Scripture validated by the records of Babylon. 575 B.C. approximately would have been about the time of this decree. Let's go to verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. And I saw a dream which made me afraid and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is... This is his second dream listed in the book of Daniel, right? His second dream that is listed. And in the first dream that was listed, we see him doing the exact same thing. We see him bringing in, according to verse 7, the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. They all come in and they all come before King Nebuchadnezzar in an attempt to interpret the dream. Now you may recall, back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar didn't just ask them to interpret the dream. He asked them to give the dream's contents. He actually said to them, if you can't even tell me what the dream is, I will kill you. Now, he was doing well on this particular day. Uh, he wasn't quite in a grumpy mood. Uh, he was actually a little bit more reasonable to his Babylonian pagan spiritualists. He brought them in and he said, come in, come in. They were probably tiptoeing, knowing what happened last time. And he said, no, no, this time I'm going to tell you what the dream is but I want you to give me the interpretation. Now, you might be wondering, why does he even bother, right? Why does he even bother with these men who, in chapter 2, years ago, failed miserably? In fact, the same question is asked by Robert, Robert Culver uh, in his commentary. He says this, The school of pompous quacks should have long since been dismissed. That's not funny to you? I think that's pretty funny. I read that and I thought, wow, I don't think Robert Culver had his coffee that morning as he was studying God's Word. He was a little grumpy, you know. The school of pompous quacks, these Babylonian spiritualists, they are fools. And yet Nebuchadnezzar knew that in chapter 2. And yet he brings them back before him and says, okay, I'm going to give you another chance. I'm going to give you another chance to interpret this dream of mine. Let's go back to the text. In any event, Nebuchadnezzar, he brings in all the wise men he tells them this dream, and as he does, you can probably you know, hear that big sigh of relief. Oh good, he told, told us the dream. But, but now, once again, just like chapter 2, just like the story in chapter 2, the Babylonian spiritualists, they hear the dream, they consider the matter, and they come back to him and say, Sir, 
we have no idea what the interpretation is. We don't have a clue. Now remember, there was a public, this is a public proclamation that we are reading. What we are reading right now before our eyes is Nebuchadnezzar's accounting of this history and a proclamation of it to Babylon and the ends of the earth. Nebuchadnezzar declares in verse 7, I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. What do you think that did to the confidence of the people in the pagan spiritualists of that day? What do you think it did? It crushed it. They thought to themselves, wait a minute. You mean our religious leaders? Our magicians? Our soothsayers? Our prophets? You mean to tell me, great king, that they could not give the interpretation? I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. The king of Babylon just publicly declared that the great spiritual leaders of the land were inept. They were inept. And Nebuchadnezzar, to his credit, had enough intellectual integrity to look at that and say, you failed. You failed. And I'm going to tell everyone that you failed. You know, when a religious system fails, think about this. When a religious system fails, or produces evil, the validity of that system should be called into question. Amen? When a religious system fails or produces evil, it should be called into question. We live in a time and a place, however, in our world today, where political leaders laud and give praise to world religions without merit. If I had a nickel for every time I've heard that Islam is a religion of peace, I'd be a very rich man. Have you heard that before? That Islam is a religion of peace? Well, guess what? There's only one problem with it. It's not true. Muhammad was a wicked and a vile man. And nations that embrace Islam are inevitably places where tyranny and oppression abound, where liberty is suffocated, and where women and children are treated like dogs. Show me one Islamic nation, one, where there is true freedom of speech, freedom of religion, one. You can't find it. And yet our culture, our media, our government, all parties... They applaud things like this Arab Spring, as it's called, when nations like Libya and Egypt and Tunisia and many others are deposing themselves of their tyrannical rulers. And the Western cultural elites, they're applauding. And they're telling you that all we need is democracy in those lands. All we need is democracy and that will cure all the ills, all the evils of the Middle East. As for me... I believe the words of an 18th century Irish philosopher and statesman, Edmund Burke, when he says this, before we congratulate people on their freedom, we should see what use they make of it.
before we congratulate people on their freedom, we should see what use they make of it. You see, democracy won't work in the Middle East if Islam prevails. Until the people in those nations abandon a system of religion that fails them time and again, democracy will be an effort in futility. And I say this because the pagan spiritualists in Babylon, in our story, failed to produce results. They failed the king. And the king, to his credit, publicly denounced them. Said they couldn't do it. And later on, he's going to use even stronger language. They were inept. They were incapable. Results were not produced by these pagan spiritualists. A false system of religion. Nebuchadnezzar, to his credit, called a spade a spade. He publicly rebuked the failure of his own spiritual advisors before everyone. And he pointed out that his empire would be better served to listen to another prophet, the prophet Daniel of the Lord God of Israel. I wonder, do we have the courage to point out when religions fail their people? Do we have the courage to point it out? Do we have the courage to look at Christianity and say, where are we going wrong? What are we doing wrong? As Christians, what do we need to remedy? We need to have as a people the intellectual integrity to look at other systems of religion and to look at our own and to say, is this working? What needs refinement? And of the other religions of the world, we need to point out their error, their inconsistencies, where they go wrong, and why they fail their nations time and time and time again. I pray that this nation could learn that. I think it's um, beginning to be learned uh, in the UK right now as uh, David Cameron is dealing with uh, revolts and uprisings. Uh, he, the, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom declared um, publicly, he said one of the reasons this is happening is because we've abandoned our Christian heritage. David Cameron of the United Kingdom, Prime Minister, said one of the reasons these riots are happening is because we've abandoned our Christian heritage. He's talking now about values again. He's talking about good and bad, about what is right and what is wrong. Amen to that. Atheism and the other religions in the United Kingdom have failed. And Christianity, sadly, has also failed. But it can be revived if we would but claim it again. Verse 8, the pagan spiritualists fail, but there's one who doesn't. But at last Daniel came before me, says Nebuchadnezzar. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. Daniel, his name means God is my judge. Now, Belteshazzar, the second name given for Daniel, that's an interesting name. It's the one that Nebuchadnezzar gave him. It means, Bel, protect my life. Bel was a pagan god of Babylon. 
Nebuchadnezzar cites him as my God there in verse 8. Now, many people will point to this and say, see, aha, Nebuchadnezzar is still unregenerate at the time of the decree. He mentions the name of his God, Bel, or or Marduk is is his more proper name, perhaps indicating that that Nebuchadnezzar is still a, a a polytheist in orientation. But it's equally possible that Nebuchadnezzar is simply explaining why he had previously named Daniel that name. It's not altogether clear whether Nebuchadnezzar is saying, and this is still my God, or whether he's saying, this is why I named him, because it was the name of my God back then. We don't know. In the end, we can't be sure. But again, we can't be sure of anyone's spiritual condition. You see, people can talk till they're blue in the face about who's saved and who's not saved. But the truth is, no one can see the heart. And Paul tells us in Romans 10 that it is with the heart that one believes Christ unto justification. It is with the heart. And you can't see the heart. And neither can I. And so any attempt for, for pastors or leaders or parishioners or anyone to look at anyone else and say, oh, well, they're definitely saved. Oh, they're definitely not saved. How foolish. How foolish. You can't see their heart. I know some, I know some really sinful people who I'm quite confident are Christians because I feel that I've, I've caught a glimpse of their heart. I, I, I've been able to see it in their life and I, I can just see that they're trying. They've sinned a great deal, but they love the Lord. They believed on Him. And then, I, and then you can look at the holiest of people. And yet their heart, Jesus said, can be like a whitewashed tomb, like the Pharisees. You just don't know. You can't see the heart. Anytime you see somebody um, pretending to know with certainty whether someone is saved or not, I think that's, that's quite foolish. The Bible doesn't support that. Nebuchadnezzar, though, he, he goes to Daniel. And he, he, he describes him as one in whom the spirit is the spirit of the holy God. And he asks Daniel to interpret the dream. He calls him the chief of the magicians. But we probably don't need to worry too much about that phrase. Daniel wasn't practicing magic. He was a prophet who relied on God for his interpretive skill. And so Daniel begins to listen to Nebuchadnezzar recount his dream. And here's the dream. Verse 10. These were the visions of my head while on my bed, Nebuchadnezzar says. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great, and the tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were lovely, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. And the beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the air dwelt in all its branches, and all flesh were fed from it. Okay, so what are we seeing? We're seeing a tree. He's describing his vision to Daniel. A tree in the middle of, uh, in, the, in the midst of the earth, tall and mighty. It could be seen for miles and miles. A tree that gave shade and gave sustenance to all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Let's continue in verse uh, 13. And I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. The word watcher there could be translated angel. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree 
and cut off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the bird and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven. We'll stop right there in the middle of the verse. An angel, a watcher, ear in Hebrew. It's actually the only use of this Hebrew word in all of the Old Testament. An angel, a watcher, a holy one, appears out of heaven with a great proclamation. He says, cut down the tree. Dismember its branches and its leaves and its fruit. Scatter the beasts and the birds from underneath it and put an iron and bronze cover over and around it. Clamp it down. Now, something very unique happens at this point in the story. And we, we shouldn't miss it. Up until this point, Nebuchadnezzar has been using um, an, an undefined pronoun. The pronoun it. Notice, cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves. Scatter its fruit. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Referring to the tree, of course. But in the middle of verse 15, we have a change in tone. No longer is the tree just an impersonal it. Now it takes on human form. Notice verse 15. And let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast. And let seven times pass over him. All of a sudden... Our tree is not an it, but rather a man. This cut down, clamped down tree is now representative of a man. A man who eats grass like an ox. A man who is given a heart like a wild animal. The word heart there in Hebrew is lebab. It means the, the, the place of moral reflection. The place of the will. The, the pattern of, of one's behavior, how they, how they act. And it is said that this man undergoes uh, this wild beast-like experience until seven times pass over him. Seven times. Idanin in Hebrew. It means simply appointed times or seasons. It can refer to hours, to days, to weeks, to months, and to years. Given a, a comparison with Daniel chapter 7 that comes after this, and a comparison with Revelation after it, it is most likely the case that we are referring here to years. Seven years will pass with this tree clamped down, a tree that is actually representative of a man who goes on to eat like a wild animal and have a heart like a beast. Nebuchadnezzar continues in verse 17. This decision is by the decree of the watchers. This, this manifestation of what's happening with this tree and the beast now, uh, the man who, who, who takes on the heart of a beast. This decree, this decision, is by the decree of the watchers, the angels, and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever He wills, and sets over it the lowest of men. 
This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are, you are able, for the Spirit of the Holy God is in you. A reason is given for why this man is put through this experience, whoever he is. It is that the living may know that the Most High rules among men. And that the giving of power is given to the lowest of men. That the Most High is the one who gives that power. There is a mighty God-ordained lesson to be had here by the man who is to become like a beast for seven years. And that lesson is to declare to him and all who hear of this story the fact that the Lord God is King and that He alone establishes all earthly rulers. Seven years of suffering. Seven times pass over His head. Seven years of suffering are to end with mankind getting a clearer picture of who God is. Now, I ask you the question, isn't that true of all suffering? Isn't the testimony of the Bible that all suffering ends in a lesson from God? In drawing us closer to the heart of God? Bringing us closer to a knowledge of God? Are you suffering today? Do you know that there is a reason for it? James 1, verses 2-4. to Read it. Consider it all joy when we face trials of many kinds. Because God's going to use that trial and He's going to produce things in us. He's going to teach us. He's going to give us a lesson. Do you know that there's a reason for your suffering? The suffering you are experiencing right now, there's a reason for it. Do you believe that God is going to use that time to teach you something great? Of course, we'd all like to avoid the trial and just get the lesson. We'd all like to avoid the suffering and just, God, just teach me. And in the same manner, interestingly enough, uh, Nebuchadnezzar turns to Daniel and says, please, please, just give it to me now. What, what's the lesson? Notice verse 19, our closing verse. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. May the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. As before in chapter 2, God supernaturally gave Daniel insight into the interpretation, just like that. But unlike the last time, Daniel was very reticent to reveal to Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of this dream. He was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. He got a look on his face that was noticeable to the king. And the king looked at him and said, I know that look. Um, Doug and I, we often go, uh, we, meet, we try to meet weekly for breakfast to we kind of plan out the Sunday service and try to coordinate songs with message. And uh, we, since he's a teacher at Stony Brook, we've got to get up uh, early to meet for breakfast. So we get up, I'll get up early before Casey and the kids are awake and I'll, I'll go meet with Doug on a Wednesday morning. Um, have, have a little breakfast with him. And as I come home, uh, you know, later uh, after work, I'll, I'll come home to my wife and she'll say, hey, 
uh, where'd you go to breakfast? And I'll say, uh, oh, nowhere. She'll be like, no, no, tell me. Where'd you go to breakfast? And I'll be like, yeah, you know, it's okay. Yeah, nowhere. I didn't, we didn't go anywhere. Did you go to Cinnamon Productions? Uh, no. Uh, what, man, yeah, yeah, we did, yeah. I don't like you. No, she's kinder than that. My wife cannot stand it when I get to go out with Doug to her favorite breakfast place, Cinnamon Productions. I get this look on my face, and my wife knows, oh, you went to Cinnamon Productions, didn't you? She knows. She doesn't even have to ask me. And so, so I just kind of look at her, and I have a sheepish grin. So, Doug, from now on, man, it's McDonald's. It's McDonald's or nothing, all right? All right. Daniel got a look. And Nebuchadnezzar looked at his look and was like, I know that look. Something's not right here. Something's wrong. Tell me what's wrong. Spit it out, Daniel. I want to know what it is. I see that look. So the king spoke and said, don't be troubled. Spit it out. Daniel's response, though, notice this. He answers and says, my Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. Despite the fact that Daniel and his countrymen were living in a pagan land ruled by a pagan or previously pagan king hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, despite all of that, Daniel had been instructed by the Lord through Jeremiah to pray for the peace of Babylon. He wasn't to wish ill upon Nebuchadnezzar or the people of Babylon. The Jews were to become a benefit to Babylon. They were to build homes. They were to enlarge their families. They were to be productive members of society. Corey preached on that not too long ago in, in Jeremiah 29. I encourage you to check out that message. It was a good one. Daniel was to pray for Babylon. Pray for its peace. Pray for its production. And so in a show of respect to the king, he says, my Lord, may this dream that you've told me, may it be for those who hate you. May it concern your enemies. But in his heart of hearts, Daniel knew better. He knew that his wish would not be granted. It was not grounded in reality. He had been given the interpretation of the dream. And he knew assuredly of who it was about. Who was the dream about? We'll have to wait till next week. Come back for part two next week. But before we leave today, I want to leave you with three applications today as we await the conclusion of chapter 4 next week. Three applications. Number one, do not relish in the fall of another. Write that down. Do not relish the fall of another. Daniel did not even relish the fall of Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, elsewhere in Proverbs, read Proverbs 24. Boy, what a great verse. Don't gloat over your enemies. Pray for them. Pray for them. Number two, truth. This is so important to me right now. I tell you, truth is more important than loyalty. Even Nebuchadnezzar had enough integrity to renounce his own pagan spiritual advisors. Do not let your loyalty to another cause you to willfully ignore their sin. Amen? I can't tell you how, how important this is to me right now. My family is dealing with a private matter in which loyalty is being elevated above truth. Uh, we're dealing with a, a, a frustrating circumstance. 
in our own lives. And, uh, and the, the problem, the, the, the core problem of the situation is that in this scenario, loyalty is being elevated above truth. Truth above loyalty. Be loyal to your friends, no doubt. Be loyal to your family, no doubt. But when they do wrong, you call it out. That's what a friend is for. That's what a family is for. Truth above loyalty. And if we put truth before anything else, loyalty will follow. Nebuchadnezzar even had enough intellectual integrity for that. Number three, there is always a lesson in suffering. So endure trials with joy, knowing that such experiences can draw you closer to the heart and knowledge of God. And I say the word can uh, meaningfully there, intentionally, because not all of us will go through suffering and draw closer to the heart of God. Some of us will grow, grow through go through suffering, and we'll go grumbling and kicking and screaming, and we won't learn a darn thing. But for those of us who are ready for it, who can approach this with joy, knowing confidently that we will be given perseverance, character, hope, that God will teach us, you will draw closer to the heart and knowledge of God. Nebuchadnezzar cut down to size. Join us next Sunday as we conclude chapter 4. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You so much for the message of Daniel 4. There's a lot to learn here, Lord, even from a pagan king. And God, I thank You for uh, the lessons that we've already learned, uh, most especially in my mind, Lord, to put truth above loyalty. God, help us to be true to You, honorable, that we would call sin, sin when we see it. Whether it comes from within our home or from our friends or from our enemies. That we would not willfully ignore sin in our midst. God, I pray right now that You would grant us a heart that is drawing closer to You, even through our suffering. We know, Lord, that You will use suffering to bring about good. And we know, Father, as we conclude this chapter next week, that You will show us that such a dark and painful time as the seven years that Nebuchadnezzar experienced, they can be used for good. Teach us those lessons, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.